0: I'm writing to you from the noble future. If you could only see what you're creating, how you're serving, the impact you're having in the world, it would blow your mind. I think what I love most is how honest you are about how far you have yet to go, how non-noble you sometimes feel. I don't sense any shame when you say it. In fact, I see a spark of hope in your eyes. like You can't wait to see what's possible.
1: Hi, my name is Johan Kalilian. As an executive coach, I time travel with people. I get to help people create their future from their future. One of the guiding principles that we use as coaches is how future-based language transforms the way the world occurs to us. In other words, the way you speak about tomorrow shifts the way you look at the world today. It also shifts how you interact with that world. Join me as we write a letter from the future with love. What are your top complaints about our world? I think it's easy for us to answer that question as it relates to 2020, right? I mean, this year we're complaining about everything from wearing masks to social distancing. We have complaints about not being able to go to movies. We're complaining about canceling weddings or postponing graduations and all sorts of special occasions we were looking forward to. But let's be honest, it's too easy to complain about this year. So let's get out of the specifics of 2020, right? Let's let's move away from the absolute shit show that this year has been, and let's complain about life. Let's complain about our world. Let's complain about just flat out being human. Rabbi Jill Jacobs, executive director of the nonprofit. Trua, the rabbinic call for human rights, has a complaint about America to get us started, and it's right in alignment with our episode today. She says, there's a crisis in the United States today that too many of us have lost the sense of collective responsibility for our neighbors. Jill, I'm going to tell you something. I am right there with you. That's like one of my number 1 complaints about being human. I just can't stand how we don't care about the person next to us. And let me not put everybody in that, but it just feels like there's so many human beings who don't care about the person next to them. Okay. So I got I got mine out of the way. And now it's your turn. That's right. Yeah, I'm t- I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you who's listening to this in this moment right now in your car in your office on your way to work on your way to school i'm inviting you into being a complainer how do you feel about that i mean are you are you reluctant does it sound a little too suspicious for you do you think it's like a trap and then i'm going to like turn it around on you and say how dare you complain it's believe me it's it's not a trick it's an invitation to discover what's on the other end of your complaint. You see, what do you what do you complain about when it comes to being alive on this planet right now, right here? See, maybe you're like me and you complain about politicians, right? They just they just can't be trusted. They say one thing and then they do another. Maybe you complain about the economic disparity in the world. It's is that Damn Jeff Bezos, right? He could solve world hunger if he wanted to. Maybe it's about race and inequality. We talk about police brutality. I mean, everything that went down in Flint. Right now, we're talking about the issues that revolved around Jacob Blake. And it just feels like there's so many things to complain about when it comes to the, the, the disparity, the, the tension, the evil revolving around race in America. Maybe it's about the amount of debt that you're carrying. I mean, I just can't get out from these school loans and medical bills. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And and if you're listening, there's so many complaints. Now, what if I told you this? A complaint is a latent vision. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to hide. It's not something to keep secret. This is one of my favorite coaching principles. I love introducing my clients to this concept. In fact, I love it so much, I'm going to hit you with it one more time. A complaint is a latent vision. You see, you may have complaints. Complaints about our world, about others, about ourselves. And if you're like me, you usually don't want to admit those complaints. Right, like As a Latino, I've been taught to keep those complaints to myself. It's a part of my culture. No one likes a complainer, but as a coach, I've been taught to love complaints and share them openly because sharing complaints openly is the first step in actually doing something to turn them around. Now, I'm from Chicago, born and raised. I love my city, best place in the world. I mean, I love to brag on my city. But eventually I get asked, well, if Chicago's so great, why'd you move to Los Angeles? To which I answer, I mean, winter, that's a no-brainer, right? Winter in Chicago is the absolute worst. So instead of complaining about the winter in Chicago, I moved to sunny Los Angeles. The weather is beautiful. It's 70 degrees virtually every single day, and I've never had to dig my car out of a snow pile after a blizzard since I moved here. However, That's not the only complaint I have about my hometown. Some of you may be aware of one of Chicago's nicknames, the Windy City. Most people think that label is a result of our weather. It's actually unclear how this nickname came about. There's there's a number of theories floating around there. And the truth is Chicago is not the windiest city in America. It's not even close. Boston is, in fact, the windiest city in America, followed by Oklahoma City, Buffalo, Milwaukee, and a long list of others. I mean, Chicago isn't even on the top 10 list. So why in the world do people call it the Windy City? Well, there's a number of theories, but my favorite, and the one that feels most accurate, points at our history of political corruption. An article by Evan Andrews very poignantly titled Why is Chicago Called the Windy City? cites a theory that states it was coined in reference to Chicago's Bloviating residents. That's a great word, right? Bloviating residents and politicians who were deemed to be full of hot air. Proponents of the windbag view usually cite an 1890 article by New York Sun newspaper editor Charles Dana. At the time, Chicago was competing with New York to host the 1893 World's Fair... Chicago eventually won, and Dana is said to have cautioned his readers to ignore the nonsensical claims of that Windy City. Dana is often credited with popularizing the Windy City moniker. Now back to my complaint, and this is it. I have always complained about our long history of political corruption in Chicago. We have had Corrupt governors like Rod Blagojevich, who was impeached and prosecuted. Corrupt mayors like William Hill Thompson, who basically gave Al Capone run of the city. And a long list of aldermen who have been caught red-handed breaking all kinds of laws. Everything from bribes, prostitution, drugs, collusion, murder, all the way down to an almost pedestrian crime by comparison, which is stealing taxpayer dollars. And it's an exhaustive list. And it's reason to complain as a lover of the city and its residents. Before I became a coach, all I did was complain about it. I saw politics as an unchangeable aspect of society. Something that was so dark and so corrupt that there was nothing I could do about it. I took the, you know, like the it is what it is stance. The stance we take when we want to complain about something and do Nothing about it You know, that stance we take Because we don't think there's hope in changing it That's the stance I took the majority of my life When it came to Chicago politics And then And then I became a coach And I learned that my complaint It was a latent vision In other words, the thing I was complaining about It had another side to it There was a value on the other end There was something else I wanted to see There was an experience I was longing for a city run by just and noble politicians. See, I had a dream of leaders who were trustworthy, right? Leaders who were looking out for the village and not just for themselves. And because of the coaching work, I started to notice my chronic complaint and asked myself if I actually wanted to do something about it. For the first time in my life, I was curious about how I could be a part of shifting my perpetual political complaint and turning it into a vision, a vision that I would take action on. So I asked these questions, do I do I want to coach politicians? Do I want to coach Chicago politicians? I mean, do I do I want to become A politician? And what about you? What are your complaints about your world? What are your complaints about your country? This country? What are your complaints about your city? Your home? Your spouse? Your family? Yourself? Take a second and let yourself complain. Just get it out there. And now that we have our complaints out in the open, how do we turn those complaints into a vivid, noble vision of the future? Uh,
0: I'll say this as an aside. Like you, you would love, I can't wait. You would love the political debates in 2050. Oh, I bet. Where candidates regularly, while debating each other, presidential candidates, while debating each other, learn from each other. hmm and they and they defer to each other like it looks almost like what we're doing now yeah and that is like it it took me a while to figure out what was going on but it is incredibly powerful to watch two candidates who represent oftentimes opposing perspectives have a dialogue like this and learn from each other and that shapes the political perspective
1: and oh well that's the thing is cuz i would say i mean if that's part of the future that's what that's been one of my gripes, one of my complaints. And as you know, right, as coaches, we love complaints. Love it. One of, my, one of my complaints of our current era is that we seem to refuse to sit at the same table with people who disagree with us or who don't see the world the way that we do and just break bread and, and, and share ideas, create discourse. It's like it becomes oppositional. People are committed to being right. So how do we close that gap from now to where you're coming from? Like, what is it that does the trick?
0: Part of it is not to be redundant, but it is the acknowledgement that I think in, in World War in World War Two, the London Times reached out to a bunch of writers and said, Hey, send us an essay on what's wrong with the world. Right. And World War Two, this is right on the back end of the depression. You know, this was not a good time in American history or global history. A lot of suffering, a lot of horrible things are happening, a lot of people dying. And right in the middle of that, the London Times wanted to know from England's Greatest Thinkers. What's wrong with the world? And one of my favorite writers, he's not a perfect guy. He doesn't withstand the litmus test of uh, a lot of things that we care about today and should care about today. But he's a great thinker back then. And he had, this, he, he had the shortest response. He sent a, he sent a letter or a telegram to the London Times and said, what's wrong with the world today? Question mark. I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Mm. And that has always struck me to realize, and you know, in our coaching work, we say every system works the way everyone in the system wants it to. And so learning the discipline of starting looking inward first before I not that looking outward isn't important, it is. But I think one of the things that we learn over the next 30 years is looking outward should in the pie chart should take up less real estate than looking inward. Not that it is gone. But, you know, like at least if we can get it to like 60-40, you know, mm. kind of a disproportion that really changes the game. And so when we sit at the table to come acknowledging, hey, I, there's, there are parts of me in this conversation, I'm going to try... And you mentioned some of these things. I'm going to try to win. I'm going to try to be right. I'm going to be tempted to discredit information you say because it challenges me. And have everyone at the table acknowledging that from the very beginning. Change, this this new, it equalizes the playing field when we can start having conversations and be gentle with each other when
1: we find ourselves slipping into less of noble discourse. And I would say that's been one of the. I mean, there's so many beautiful tools in our work. There's so many beautiful places that we could dive into that allow us to grow and see things that we never saw before. And I would say, you know, for me, it's realizing that my internal posture really has dictated how I interpret the world and what, where I create from. As we talk about, you know, nobility being a creative place that we live from. Once I started to realize, oh, you know, my own, because, and here's the thing is like, I'm primarily a joyful, happy person. Yes. And then what that has done though, I would say it it would make me blind to the ways that I'm cynical. It would make me blind to the ways that I'm judgmental it would make me blind, blind to the ways that I was condescending or even elitist in certain areas, you know? And, and, and through the work, I think it allowed me to really see, even if I'm only judgmental, you know, 15% of the time, how that was a thing that was getting in my way or even noticing how I wanted to blame others for my problems, as opposed to asking the question, like, what is it that I can truly own? And even, you know, in the G. Chesterton realm, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm the issue here. Even something as simple as, you know, we we have Wednesday meetings, and in the beginning, you know, when I when I jumped in, I couldn't stand them. Yeah, I was like, I hate these meetings. I mean, I don't like waking up early. Yeah, it's (laughs) early. Yeah, it's well for us, it's seven. You know, it's seven in the morning. Yeah, and and historically, I'm like, I like to wake up at like (laughs) eight thirty. Yeah, yeah. So so you know, there I had all these reasons why I didn't like it. And then I started to, to really, well, one, the, the notion that we have that every experience we're having is an experience that we're creating. Yeah. And I was like, all right, let me take this idea serious. And let me start to examine how I'm creating my experience on something as simple as a Wednesday call that I'm judging as insignificant, worthy of my time, like all these other really BS narratives that I created. And the moment I started to examine that and I said, okay, how can I come to the call with a creative spirit, how can this be my favorite time of the week? Yeah. What can I what can I give to my fellow my fellow coaches on this call this week? Yeah. How am I interested in the people that I'm working with? What am I curious about? Like the more I would ask myself these questions, and again, first through noticing my judgment, and then moving to this other areas, like I started to enjoy Wednesdays and want to come to the call and want to connect and you know want to jump in, in in different little places. But I first had to pinpoint part of me that did want to blame the meeting and not take responsibility for how I'm showing up or even interpreting the meeting.
0: Yeah, that's and that's powerful, Joe. And that, What's beautiful about that is as you go through that experience, and I've had many of mine as well, like as, as an example, uh, I used to see my, uh, my mom as fragile. just sure is that. And of course, people tend to become what you judge them as. Mm-hmm. And I said, of course, like that's obvious. It's not that obvious. Let me just say it. Yes, it is
1: right now because yeah, we've yeah, been in it.
0: Yeah, people become, they tend to become how you judge them. So if you judge them as hateful, they will become hateful. If you judge them as uh, evil, they will become evil. And we we see this, you know, it's a natural cycle. So then with my mom, I, you know, and and you can map out the numbers, I judged her as fragile. Then when she would talk about how hard her day was, I would get frustrated with her and short with her. And then she'd get her feelings hurt. Then she would act in a way that was fragile. And it was, what's interesting is, I'm thinking back now. I mean, she's, she passed away a long time ago. And it's fun being back here because she's still alive now. She's in Colorado right now. So it's, mm-hmm. it's cool thinking that I'm, in this interview, my mom is alive somewhere. Right. That's, that's a neat feeling. But because um, uh, I love her very much. And in the last years of her life are the strongest years of her life. And, and she, that, that's more about her than about me. I mean, she really stepped up in a lot of beautiful ways. And me choosing to see her as strong helped her become strong. And it doesn't mean that some other things that are part of her world weren't still there. So it's not like I'm ignoring reality, mm-hmm. but I am shaping reality with my lens. I think that's what most people don't realize is the lens you have actually plays a part in shaping the reality that you create with your life. Mm-hmm. So if you change change your lens, it'll it'll change your reality. And, in, in, and again, this is a conversation in 2050 that in Appalachia, you hear... Fathers telling their daughters this conversation, and they don't now people pay money to have this kind of conversation, but this is a conversation now in, in where I'm from, where this is normal this is this is, what, this is what your grandkids know. your, your, your six-year-old grandkid will, will teach the, the neighborhood kids this thing, and they don't even realize that they're teaching.'re they're just
1: this is how they see the world. I love that. How do we get there? Can I go now? Yeah,
0: sure.
1: <laughs> German philosopher Immanuel Kant says, we all know that people act in a way that they believe to be moral. But he asked this question, what does it mean to be good? He argues that the only thing that is good without qualification is the goodwill. The will to do the right thing. I mean, whatever that is. The only genuinely good actions are the ones that you do purely out of respect of moral values. In other words, being good comes from our core. It isn't forced on us. It's a result of our internal moral code. And that, my friends, is the heart of nobility. It's an internal compass that leads us into generosity, creativity, prosperity, and community. It's a way of life that turns complaints into vision and visions into a new existence. You see, in 2020, we complain about our greed. But in 2050, we celebrate our generosity. In 2020, we complain about the same old, same old. But in 2050, we celebrate our creativity. In 2020, we complain about our poverty. But in 2050, we celebrate our prosperity because everyone is prosperous not just a select few not just the one percent in 2020 we sit here and we complain about how segregated and divided we are in 2050 we celebrate how integrated connected and communal we are and that's the noble future jason is visiting us from It's a world where we have turned all of our complaints into powerful, beautiful, and awe-inspiring ways of life. Do people even understand what what it means to be noble? Like, What's the working definition of nobility um, for you as you bring this idea to us?
0: Yeah, and I appreciate that. So this is this is my in, in 2050, and I'm sure in 2080 it'll be different. And if I'm alive in the year 3000, if I'm if I'm just a fingernail in year, you know, an year or whatever, will that be know. like an Andy
1: Richter in the year 3000? <laughs> Can we bring that back?
0: If, we, no, if we're around then, <laughs> that is hot. That is hot in 2050. That's so hot, you are so relevant. You don't even realize it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my best understanding of nobility comes in four in four buckets. And and even as I'm talking now, if you're listening to this, to kind of do an audit in terms of where you are with these four things, and all four of them are important. You can't separate them from each other, and all four of them influence each other, right? So a lot of people tend to focus on one over the other, and and nobility is found in the synergy and the harmony of these four values. So the first is generosity, and and I, and I don't think that'll surprise anybody. So it's, it's in the last thirty years, it's been the, the the journey and the struggle around what does it mean to be generous? What does it mean to to continue to grow your capacity to think about other people over yourself uh, and, and, and in a way that's healthy. And that's, that's the first value of nobility. The second value is prosperity. And the idea there is you can't give what you don't have. And so giving people permission over the last 30 years to to reframe ambition is not something to be used for yourself, but it's something to be used for others. And when you do that, it's actually a good thing. Giving people permission to be even more ambitious most people don't suffer from being too ambitious; they suffer from not being ambitious enough, and the more ambitious you are, the more energy relationships, uh, resources, whether it's wealth or whatever, you have to give and you know in 2020 we made that that short little generosity audit and all that and and you can explore more about that. then the third piece is uh, creativity, so like not just finding ways of being generous and prosperous that is rote or copycat or about conformity, but it's about Finding ways of doing that that are deeply satisfying and watching over the last 30 years, people find their uniqueness and finding really fulfilling and energizing ways of being prosperous and generous. And then the last piece is uh, community and, and doing it not alone, not by yourself, not sometimes I'll say not going rogue or, you know, but actually saying, okay, how can I take as many people with me as possible? How can I partner with other people? How can I support other people, what they're up to? But to, to, to be generous, to pursue prosperity, to find your voice of creativity in the context of healthy community. And if you, and if you start leaning into those four things, that will start to create this really beautiful uh, image of nobility in your life and the lives mm-hmm. of other people. And that's, that's as in 2050, that's our best understanding of it.
1: Well, now I'm getting really excited because basically you're visiting us from a very generous, you know, prosperous, communal, creative future. That's right. And I mean, my mind can move into so many different directions of like, what in the world does that look like? So can you yeah. give us like something like a standout portion of like, man, this is what you love in 2050. Um, and even like how you helped create that.
0: How I helped create one is it's important to, to model that like I had a lot of help. And to even take any credit for it feels a little disin, disingenuine. Well, the community, right? So you're, you, right.
1: you're part of community. So we know that.
0: So it was it was a team it was a team sport, and I'll tell you the leaders of the world I get Terry thinking about it the leaders of the world stepped up in a really, really beautiful way mm. and and even I'll say this some leaders uh, who you thought were going to show up really struggled, and other leaders who uh, if I told you who they were you'd be like, "No way is that person a part of the noble future?" and uh, they pivoted, and I wouldn't believe it. If I saw, and then and then, and then there's other leaders who you thought would show up, and they did. <laughs> you know, so yeah. you know, so it's just it's interesting. Well, we don't get any hints. No, no hints. <laughs> no hints. <laughs> no hints. What I'll tell you is, no matter where you are on the uh, political ideological spectrum, there are some folks now who are heroes who became uh, villains for a short period of time. Some people who were villains who became heroes, and some people who are heroes who stayed heroes. And then a few a few folks who were, you know uh, were were villains who stayed villains. But uh, <laughs> but it, it was a wonderful. Over on the whole, we were all really shocked and surprised at who showed up and who took on the mantle of nobility and, and making this a cultural phenomenon. And it was it was a bla and, and you know without giving too much away. I don't know if I want to be like Doc Brown. No one can know too much about their own future. Yeah, right. And I want to tell you know, but you played a very significant role in that. And uh, and it's uh, I think I think you're in for a treat.
1: Oh man, well that makes me feel good. And I and that's the thing is I want to let people know how the things that you're communicating right now, these are not just ideas. You're not just waxing eloquent. You're not somebody who is committed to rhetoric. And and that's part of why I wanted to have you on on, the podcast is because from what I've seen, all these, I would say, channels of nobility, you live out on a daily basis. And, And I would say... You know, you're you're one of the people that has really called me to new levels of my own leadership, my own humanity, and and definitely without. And I've you know I've told you this often, but I want to, to say this publicly. It's like I'm a better man and a higher quality leader because of your presence in my life.
0: Well, I, uh, I I appreciate that. I um I think this. So I think uh, one of the first steps of nobility is un- understanding how uh, much of it I lack sometimes. You know. And so like, even in our work, we talk about integrity and authenticity. And I think you and I were talking recently and we were talking about how the first step towards authenticity is acknowledging your inauthenticity. Mm. And nobility works the same, the same way. So even hearing you say that, of course, I'm, of course it feels really good and I receive it as, the, as a love and affection that you have. And also, of course, my mind floods with all the ways that I'm not noble and how much room I have uh, to grow and speaking from 2050, that never goes away. The, the shame goes away a little bit about how far we have to go, um, which is a good thing. But the acknowledgement that oh, we have a long way to go—you know—it's a summitless peak. It's, it's, uh, and that's part of the fun. Is, is, you know, I, I would love to have Jason and Johan 3000 on here, yeah, talking about all the things they learned in the next 50 years. Or is it 500 years? Am I doing my math wrong on that? Twenty, I think so. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's just 30. It's 30 years you know, right? 30 years to 2050 yeah, yeah.
0: and then another 50 years to 20, 2100.
1: Right, right. Yeah, not 3000. That's enough. Less... No, that's why I was like, you were going, you were going, Wait. you were going. I was like, wow, if we're around, then I mean, man, it's, we did a great job surviving. Yeah, it, yeah, not,
0: that's bad math skills there. But the, <laughs> and, and just to come back and say, you know, as, as, a, as giving some signposts to what we're all up to, Nobility starts with the acknowledgement that we have a lot to learn about it. And one of the obstacles, I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but one of the obstacles is the belief that I am noble and that others are not. Mm. That hurts. It hurts me because I'm not seeing myself accurately and it hurts others because I'm not seeing them accurately mm-hmm. either.
1: Which, which that's the thing is like, I think for those, for those of us that aren't familiar even with the idea or maybe people who have like a general understanding of nobility you, the thing that first came to mind when I heard the word nobility was like, oh, that's, you know, restricted to a specific group of people. When you think of human history, nobility, right? It's like this type of royalty and it's passed on. You're born into nobility. Part of what we're talking about is actually, no, you, you get to, to grow this nobility because it's a result of the characters. It's a result of who you choose to be as a human being.
0: Yeah, that's right. And And one of the great challenges that, we will face together in the next 30 years that we, that we make it through is, I, and what I hear you saying is, Joe, like most people when they think of nobility, they think of like power. Mm-hmm. And some people have and some people don't kind of a thing. And what happens is in the next 30 years is culturally people begin to understand not only how much power they do have, uh, which is a positive thing in general, but, but just because you help everyone discover how much power they have doesn't mean they're going to use it in a positive way. You know and so what's really beautiful, and what I think you're going to really enjoy not only experiencing but helping create, and of course, a lot of you who are listening to this, and we know who you are because uh, you'll reach out to us in a couple of years and we'll get to oh, I listen to this podcast and and then we get to go the next twenty years together, which will be a lot of fun. But people listen to this podcast it's it's not just about reframing uh, that you have power, it's reframing how people use power mm-hmm. and that that is a cultural revolution, and it didn't come easy about helping. People understand that the purpose of power is for the benefit of others, and that is a heavy bar, man. Like, even as I'm saying that, I'm like, whoo, The last thirty years have been a journey, uh, but it's fascinating watching. It's, it's been really, it's been fun watching people in agriculture and in law enforcement and in uh, the justice system and in inter- arts and entertainment and fashion and and uh, education and all these industries wrestle with and grapple with and rediscover what the purpose of power is. And, mm-hmm. and that's that's a big part of that.
1: I want us to walk away with something today. I want us to walk away with a clear vision of what it means to be noble people. And that begins with the questions we ask ourselves about who we are now and how we create that noble future. How can we become A truly generous society. What does it mean to give more than we take? Imagine a world where that's the norm. Where each and every one of us looks for ways to give things away. Not because we have to. Not because it's a government sanction. Not because of shame or guilt. Not because of virtue signaling or social media likes. Just because it's a result of our way of being. I mean, how can all of us prosper? What does it mean to make wealth and success a way of life for everyone? Can you imagine that world? Right? Like a world where we all have access to what we need when we need it. Where each and every one of us isn't lacking because we've learned how to live in abundance. In our noble future, like scarcity, it's it's not even a word anymore. We've eradicated poverty and hunger because we all Live in overflow. We've built cities and countries rooted in true prosperity for all and not just a select few. And what does it mean to be creative? How can we become the type of people who find new ways to fix old problems? Imagine a world where we don't settle, right? Like where we don't give into the temptation of giving up when things get difficult, a world where we get creative when obstacles arise, where we choose to stay committed and think of the new way, the unorthodox way to get the job done. And what does it mean to be a part of a community? See, what will it take for us to build the noble future we are talking about today? Imagine a world where we are all on board with creating this world we're talking about today, the noble world. Imagine seeing anyone and everyone as our neighbor. There's no more hate for people who are different than us. We don't create dividing lines. In fact, we erase them and we expand the circle because we all belong. Each and every one of us belongs. Yes, you, me, and everyone who has breath in their lungs belongs. Can you imagine that world? A world where we live in beloved communities with one another. See, as I type this, our country has experienced yet another senseless shooting. An unarmed black man named Jacob Blake was shot seven times by police while his three children watched from the car. And what was his crime? Attempting to stop a street fight on his way home and turning his back. On police. In 2020, our professional sports teams right now have boycotted by refusing to play until changes are made. Acting as ambassadors of a global community, right? Professional athletes are acting with determination and nobility. They see the same future we are talking about today. A noble future where people of every racial background and creed are not only safe to walk the streets but where we all flourish in and out of our homes. You see, we're protesting for that future. And Jason is visiting us from that future. This podcast exists to make sure that that future, a noble future, becomes a reality.
0: And even with all you have yet to learn, I love how through your example, being generous and celebrating generosity has become normal in our friendships, family, and communities. I love, through your leadership, that ambition has become repositioned not as an expression of greed, but as a resource for serving others. Thank you for giving people permission to be extraordinary. I love, through your community, that people feel more connected than ever. The fear of the other has lessened. The joy of being known and championed, and when necessary, forgiven, has become common. As an aside, uh, you should see the political debates today. There's so much respect and honor between the candidates, how they learn from each other, and you should see what happens when 500 million Americans vote. I love the creative ways you've helped those of your colleagues in authority become creative in the ways of serving and growing and connecting. You inspire me. Thank you for going on this journey years ago when you first learned of the noble pursuit. It'll be hard, but keep going. I'm here in the noble future you created, and I'm telling you, the
1: pain was worth it with a very crucial election around the corner we'll be talking about a future where everyone votes we'll be speaking with two very special guests one of them actually both of them uh, another couple of my best friends They'll be joining us. One of them you you actually recognize. We've, we've talked to him before, Dr. Matthew Sandoval. And the other is a, a man named Ivan Lisade who actually does all our graphics for the show. They'll both be visiting us from a not-so-far-off Democratic land where everyone votes. I mean, you won't want to miss it. From the Future with Love was written and performed by yours truly, Johan Kalilian, produced by Rithu Jagannath and Matthew Jones, executive produced by our guest today, Jason Jaggard, fact checked by Rithu Jagannath, editing, mix, and tech production by Hammond Chamberlain, photography by Jess Kaler, and graphic design by Ivan Lisades. Special thanks to Jason Jaggard for visiting us from the very noble year of 2050, and to everyone who is a part of our time traveler community, thank you, and I'll see you in the future.